Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Prader Willie syndrome, the condition where you never feel full and constantly seek food. I'll hear from a parent who wants the stigma to lift for her nine year old son, Henry. CEO of Breast Cancer Ireland, Ashling Hurley, will be discussing the latest advancements in treatments. And performance nutritionist Sinead Bradbury gives her take on a holistic view of health and wellness. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, school is out for the summer, so it's another milestone in the year past. Another year of school for my kids and for many is over. And it's funny when... You don't have the routine, you crave the routine. But I'm at the point now where I don't want the routine. Everyone is tired, teachers, coaches, kids, parents. So I'm looking forward to no school run, no packed lunches, no matches or swimming lessons. And hopefully we can pack a bag on bright evenings, have picnics on the beach, watch a few sunsets and nobody will fight. We will see. And later in the show, I'm going to be joined by CEO of Breast Cancer Ireland, Ashling Hurley. And this week, social media was alight over the death of Deborah James in the UK, known as Bowel Babe on Instagram. She earned her dame title, having raised £6.7 million for cancer research and raised awareness for bowel cancer. And in her post about her passing at the age of 40, her family spoke of her advice to people. Find a life worth enjoying, take risks, love deeply and have no regrets and always, always have rebellious hope. And finally, check your poo. It might just save your life. And I asked on my Instagram if there had been things people had wanted to do in life but hadn't due to fear. And I got so many responses, people who didn't leave relationships, didn't leave jobs, didn't set up businesses, didn't start a college course or lots of people said they were too afraid to learn how to drive. Um, I heard too old, too late, too scared. And look, I get it. I'm not immune myself to self-doubt and procrastination, believe you me. But I know it's stark, but every now and then something like Dame Deborah James will remind you that life is too short to be filling any of it with regrets. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, the University of Limerick will play host this July to hundreds of delegates who are assembling from around the world to share knowledge and advance understanding of Prada-Willi syndrome, also known as PWS. PWS is a rare genetic disorder that results in a range of physical, behavioural and mental health issues. And it's estimated that it affects about 120 people in Ireland. One of those is nine-year-old Henry Tierney Walsh from Galway. And I'm joined in studio by his mum, Emma, and Gary Brown. National Development Manager of PWS Association in Ireland. Well, you're both very welcome. Thank you. And Emma, I've just met Henry outside. He is a gorgeous little boy who tells everyone that he lives a brilliant life, which is a mum is all you want to hear, really, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Henry is really a glass half full person. He is so optimistic. And even if he's ever had a bad day, he'll start the next day just with the joy of starting a new day. He's a real funny, caring, kind child. He's, he's We're really proud of him. So your diagnosis was quite early. He was two weeks old. So was there, a, it was a very much known that something was a little amiss from when he was born? Yeah, so Henry had... a 
I guess the first hour of Henry's life was perfect. There was nothing up. And then a nurse happened to walk past him and noticed that he had really low tone. So he was really floppy. He really couldn't, it was like he had no muscle. Um, so he was whisked off to the NIC unit straight away. And then um, they were doing a load of tests on him. So he was pricked like his little heels, had like loads of little pins points on it for blood tests. And then at two weeks old, we got the diagnosis that it was Prader-Willi syndrome. And how did you feel about that or how did you I mean that's two weeks you're already coming to terms with being responsible for a baby but then to try and take on a, a diagnosis and, and specialised care how did you and your husband manage? Well it was ab- it was absolutely heartbreaking at the time um, I guess though because he was in the NICU and there was loads of premature babies in there and they were all moving lots whereas poor Henry could only move his eyes so we knew there was something up and I guess when we got the you know, diagnosis of Prader-Willi syndrome. At least we knew it was something. Um, and we were told not to Google it. But, you know, like any parent, of course, you're going to go Google it. And we found out everything there was to find out about it, um, which, you know, I guess was a bit scary at the time because there's, you know, Google isn't the best place to go when you're when you get a diagnosis of, of Prader-Willi for your small baby. But with time, you do grow to accept it. And I think the association were such a great support to us that we gained a lot of valuable information and, and friends and we got to meet other people who have Prader-Willi syndrome. And I think that gave us hope for the future and hope for Henry. Because I think that's what we need as humans, isn't it? We need information. And even when you hear it from a doctor, you're trying to take in so much. That's why you go to Google. So to have an actual association that can talk to you again, that can advise you, that can listen to you, that can put you in touch with not only support systems like speech therapists and physiotherapists, but other parents or people in the same situation as you. I mean, that is invaluable. Oh, absolutely. And then I guess because even when Henry would have started with his early intervention team when he was about six months old, but they hadn't come across Prader-Willi syndrome. So you're kind of trying to educate professionals you know, from your own point of view. Um, so, you know, that part of it, things can be really challenging as a parent because, you know, you want the best for your child. But when you're dealing with professionals who don't really know anything about PWS, it can, it can cause a lot of stress. Well, can you educate us a little bit then as to what it is, what you were told when it comes to Henry and, and how it affects him day yeah. to day? So I guess when Henry was a baby, he would have had failure to thrive. So that meant that, you know, we were we were having to really force him to feed. And then when he was around two years of age, that switch in his brain went and instead of being not interested in food, he became quite interested in food. And it was quite manageable up until maybe about a couple of months ago, actually. And now that dial of hyperphagia has just dialed up a bit more. So Henry would get really stressed out in food environments. It would cause him a lot of stress. Like recently we were at um, a petrol station and we, we had to go in because it wasn't pay at pump. And Henry actually, I looked at him and he had his, he was covering his eyes because there was just so much food around. And he'd be quite insightful into having Prader-Willi syndrome and he understands a lot about it himself. So he was able to say to me, oh mum, can we, can we leave here really quick because there's so much food around and it isn't my snack time. So there's that that whole side of thing when it comes to the uncontrollable hunger. But Henry would have an awful lot of other symptoms as well. He'd have huge, massive anxiety. If there's any change in his day, that causes him, causes him a huge amount of stress. Um, he would have had 
sleep apnea up until about six months ago. So he would have had a CPAP mask at night. So he would have had to train in having air kind of pushed into his lungs while he was sleeping. Um, he would have a learning difficulty in school. So he has a great school and a great support with his SNA. So there's a huge amount of Prader-Willi syndrome apart from the food side of things. But I guess the food side of things is what controls our daily life. Um, every day is, even though he gets every meal every day at night before he goes to sleep, he'll always check, is he getting his breakfast the next morning? So, yeah, it, it, it's a different way of living, definitely. Yeah. Because they feel constantly hungry and then don't know when they're full. That's a constant. That part in Henry's brain just doesn't tell him he's full. So he'd continuously eat throughout the day. So we have a lot of rules at home when it comes to food. Our kitchen presses are locked. Henry's not allowed in the kitchen without supervision. Um, He needs to know the structure of the day that he'll get all his meals throughout the day. He has a little baby brother who's two and he, you know, like any two-year-old is a bit wild and would happily give Henry any leftover food. But we have to, you know, kind of rein Billy in and trying to teach him not to do that. Um, Yeah, so food really rules our lives. Um, At home, it's okay because we have all the right structure in place to keep Henry safe. But like we were recently in a hotel and Henry found that really stressful because continuously just asking, you know, are we going to have food? Are we going to have food at the right time? He's really charming as a kid. So people offer him food all the time, like things that he's not allowed to eat so that he kind of goes into fight or flight mode when that happens. And he needs the safety of mum or dad to say, no, Henry, we're going to keep you safe. Um, So, yeah, so food really, our lives are really controlled by Prader-Willi syndrome. And, I mean, you described the early days of Henry that he could only move his eyes. And yet I've met a a nine-year-old boy who people will walk past later today and have no real idea that there's anything wrong. He's up, he's moving, he's talking. So he's come a, a huge, long way. Yeah, no, he's done hours and hours and hours of physiotherapy, speech and language therapy, occupational therapy to get him to those goals. Henry exercises every day for an hour without fail. Um, and that's to help him keep at a healthy weight. We control his diet, so it keeps him at a healthy weight. He is really goal-driven, so he loves reaching a new goal. He's recently started playing Ga for All with our local team, and that's just been such a huge thing for him because even six months ago, Henry wouldn't have looked at a football, and now he's really joining in and he's loving it. Um, so, yeah, no, he, he really loves celebrating all of those milestones. So he wouldn't have, like walked until he was three years old and I think because we now have Billy, Billy has reached everything without anybody's help and we've really realised that Henry, everything Henry can do is because we've put hours and hours of work into helping Henry reach his goals. Well look, sounds like you've done the most incredible job. It can't have been easy at times but of course love has been your your fuel and it sounds like you've done the absolute best to build this beautiful family. So hats off, it has to be said to you and your husband through all of that and and your friends. We've granddad outside, so I know you have a lot of support also. Oh, we do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we call them all Team Henry and, you know, they're real champions of him from everybody he meets. You know, he really he really engages people and he loves he loves people like he won't forget you now. <laughs> He'll be talking about you for ages. Um, you yeah, know, we're really lucky to have such a great support. Incredible. And Gary, I want to bring you in, please. Gary Brennan, National Development Manager of Prader-Willi Syndrome Association in Ireland. And as Emma says, everything Henry has done is due to support, not only from herself and her husband and family and friends, but the network of people that you have been able at the association 
to put her in touch with. It's essential when there's such a, a challenge or a tremor in life. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, because Prader-Willi syndrome is such a complex condition, there's a huge range of, of individuals involved in that support. So you've got clinicians, uh, the, the, the main support or the main clinical support would be endocrinology. Uh, so uh, Henry would, would attend clinic down in, in Tally University Hospital. But then you've got speech and language therapy, you've got physiotherapy. And, you know, we, we've made out a list and there's up to 42 different individuals who, who would need to support a person with Prader-Willi syndrome across their lifespan. And the most important part really for those individuals is that they have an awareness, that they understand the condition, that they understand the intricacies of Prader-Willi syndrome. And we would find that that is, is possibly the most difficult part is, is, is ensuring that throughout the country nationally that anybody who is supporting a person with Prader-Willi syndrome has the knowledge and, and the ability to be able to, to support them. And how much do we know about PWS? What causes it? Do we have any research into any cure possibly down the line? The condition was first described in 1953 by Drs. Prader Dr. and Dr. Villy. Uh, I think the first diagnosis in Ireland was in the early 1980s. Um, it's a genetic condition. And as I said, it's, it's very, very complex. And it's, it occurs as a lack of expression between one or more genes on the specific region of chromosome 15. In Ireland, there's probably about 130, 120 to 130 people with Prader-Willi syndrome at the moment. And we think that there's between four and five new births per year. Um, there's no cure for Prader-Willi syndrome at the moment, although there is quite a lot of research going on by the pharmas to try and find individual uh, medications that, that can affect some of the symptoms of Prader-Willi syndrome. But globally, we would find that the, the best support for people with Prader-Willi syndrome is, 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 first of all, early diagnosis because it gives the family an opportunity to, to, to learn about the condition early and to put the, the supports in place at an early stage. Growth hormone can also help with the hypotonia or the low, the low muscle mass. But we would find that both environmental and psychological security around food are, are absolutely essential. So the environmental security may mean locked kitchens, it may mean putting locks on presses and fridges, or just as simply as giving somebody one-to-one support when they're in close proximity to food. The psychological support then would be more around, as, as Emma spoke there about Henry, who gets quite anxious when, he's un- when there's uncertainty around food. So we'd be trying to provide the individual with certainty. So a daily diet plan and ensuring that there was no unnecessary access to food throughout the day. Uh, that then lowers anxiety and anxiety can be the biggest cause of, of maladaptive behaviours for people with Prader-Willi syndrome. So across with, with the families that, that I'd support or the association would support and then in residential centres we would find that if you can keep the anxiety down you'll, you'll, you'll be able to keep the behaviours at bay. You said, Emma, that you wanted to sort of remove some of the stigma around conditions like this. Well, what do you want people to know? Do you think we're starting to get more inclusive? We talk more about neurodiversity all the time. And I think years ago, if somebody had witnessed a child like Henry feeling anxious in a petrol station, there may have been judgment. Whereas I think now people are a bit more open to say, we don't know what's going on there or why this is happening. And they might give you more of a smile in support than anything else. Have you started to feel that a little bit? Uh, yeah, definitely. People are definitely, I guess, kinder if they see, like if Henry is having a hard time, people are kinder. But I guess with Prader-Willi syndrome, 
it can be very lonely because food is involved in everything. So even though some things can say they're inclusive, if food is at it, it's just going to cause anxiety for Henry. Um, myself or my husband would have to be there. And like Henry's nine now, he's nearly 10. When he's a teenager, he doesn't want mum and dad hanging out with them, you know. Um, so I do hope, you know, I would love if there was some activities for Henry to join in that weren't always going to have food because food just causes anxiety um, and a huge amount of stress for Henry. So even though the world is becoming a bit more inclusive, it's not really fully inclusive to somebody with prader really syndrome. Yeah, and the more you say it, the more I think about kid situations, soft play, even sporting events. Sometimes some of the sports my kids train at, I wonder, do we need a sweets table at the side? You know, there's shops that we could all choose from. I often question it myself and I'm more coming from a different situation. Obviously, it's a lot more heightened for you. But yeah, it's certainly worth thinking about. Well, look, I've no doubt he's going to continue to thrive to look at where he has come from to nine and I really wish all of you the very best for the future. Emma Tierney Walsh and Gary Brennan thank you so much for coming in and for more information on Prada Willie Syndrome or for the details of the forthcoming International Prada Willie Syndrome Organisation Conference co-hosted by the PWS Association of Ireland it's taking place in the University of Limerick from July 6th to 10th and you can go to pwsai.ie Now, the last few years have been a challenge for all, but for the charity sector, not being able to bring people together in person meant a big threat to much needed fundraising. Ashling Hurley is CEO of Breast Cancer Ireland and she joins me in studio now. Hello, Ashling. Hi, Claire. How are you? So, look, it was tough. I mean, everybody goes back to that announcement by the Taoiseach around Patrick's Day that everything was closing down Mm -hmm. and everyone's thinking about it personally and I'm sure you did too. Mm -hmm. But professionally, to know that lockdowns were going to be something that we were going to be going with. Mm -hmm. It was a big worry for Breast Cancer Ireland. Massive, massive worry and for everybody in the charity sector. But for us, I suppose, because our main core business was physical events. You know, we had started training with some of our supporters and our survivors. We do this Battle of the Stars event every year um, and we'd already trained with them from January and February because the event was to take place in the middle of April. So that had to stop. Everybody had to stop. We didn't know for how long we were going to be uh, restricted. We didn't know, you know, it was going to take two years to come out of this. Um, So that was Battle of the Stars gone, big fundraiser. Our Great Pink Run, which is a massive annual fundraiser for us and raises like close on a million euros, was also stopped. So we battened down the hatches and did a little bit of self-searching and realised, well, our online community, if we really looked at them carefully, spoke to them and asked them, what do they really want to know from us? What is interesting for them? And we found that, you know, they wanted to know a lot about the research. They wanted to know a lot about the personal stories that were out there and people's journey and how they were coping. And um, and they also wanted to know about the education and awareness piece and how we could all stay safe, you know, even throughout COVID, you know, to be more breast aware. If we weren't able to go and have a, a breast check done with the government agency um, to get your mammogram, well, how could they check themselves? themselves? Um, so we created a kind of a brief and we reached out to a number of digital companies and one company in particular, Wolfgang, were amazing and they came on board and they put manners on us, but they taught us how to communicate in an online world and that really was our saving grace. And it's the same with organisations across the world, things that maybe have been put on the long finger because of the day-to-day running of things before the pandemic, it became a new way of doing business, even how we have meetings now and how you drive your fundraising. And I believe 
your fundraising was up on pre-COVID times. Yeah, phenomenally up. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I think we went into COVID, which was March, um, having raised maybe about 1.3 million. Um, Our target was to get over two. Our annual would be about two, two and a bit. Um, And then all of a sudden we got a call in the May of 2020 from a couple in Louth, Niall Niall Carroll and his wife, um, Cara. Cara was going through her treatment at the time and he said, look, he had started this thing called 100K in 30 Days for the local community of Blackrock in Louth. And he said, would you be interested? We'd love to support Breast Cancer Ireland. We love the work you do. Cara's getting great treatment. Um, this was on the 24th of May and I think we were, he wanted to kick it off on the 1st of June. So it was like, right, okay, let's get our teams together. Let's get all our heads together and see can we really maximise and help them um, with this endeavour. It was a phenomenal success. They did a nationwide call out, even an international call out. They raised about 1.2 million in year one. Um, they had about, I think, something like 15,000 people got involved from all over the country and internationally because people were restricted to their 2K or 5K kilometre at that point in the June. So it was just fun, fantastic. It was Everybody was out wearing the pink T-shirts um, and raising money for Breast Cancer Ireland, which was amazing. I know, it's incredible. I think we had them on the show around mm. the time of the national call out. Yeah. And people were really tuned into what was important as well, weren't exactly. they? So getting out, getting moving, giving back. Definitely. And that's what was important. Mm. And I, was it, it was at that time where people were looking for something to do outside of being at home and being curtailed. You know, you couldn't go out, you could barely go for your essential groceries. So this was an opportunity to just get out for your hour headspace, go and walk, go and run, go and cycle, do whatever you like, but clock your kilometres. So you felt part of that family, that community around the uh, the 100k in 30 days, which was brilliant. I mean, they just finished yesterday and another phenomenal success. So, I mean, it is just, it's amazing the, the support that is out there. And half the reason I wanted to have you in was because often we don't hear about where that fundraising goes. And I know that's something you've been taking on and people can Mm -hmm. see it on your on your social media. But I think when we talk about a cancer diagnosis or breast cancer, a lot of the time we speak to those who have had that diagnosis, Mm. which is obviously a very important Mm -hmm. conversation to have the personal story, Mm -hmm. the treatment and hopefully getting better or or not. But sometimes we don't talk about the advancements Mm -hmm. in research and you've been able to do some incredible things with that fundraising. Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of it's one of those things. It requires continuous investment. You know, we we just have to constantly keep ploughing. We've done so much to date, but we are doing a lot more and there's lots more to do. We have a new clinical trial with thanks to the fundraising from the 100K team in 30 days and the communities that supported it. A new trial called um, the Shamrock Trial. It's kicking off at the moment and there will be 80 patients from across Ireland will be um, brought onto that trial. It's looking at a subtype breast cancer called HER2 positive. Um, which is quite an aggressive cancer and it returns sometimes in about 30% of women. And what we're looking at is we're looking at using a fourth generation drug, combining it with chemotherapy only for the first month and then trying to de-escalate the need for chemotherapy after that. Um, And at the moment, they're reckoning within two to three years, they will have a 100% response rate, which means a cure for that particular subtype of breast cancer. That is phenomenal to get to that point. And that's such a big mindset shift as well, that chemotherapy is not necessarily part of everyone's journey. Absolutely. I mean, 10 years ago, chemotherapy was given to everybody. Um, It was the standard treatment of care and yet it would only work in 10% of cases. So the other 90% of people were getting chemotherapy, which is toxic, into their body, not realising it wasn't going to work because nobody realised. Now we know that with a sophisticated blood test that's done, that each patient is very 
personal. It's a personal journey for them. So it's a personal treatment plan. So I could have, say, six women in a room, all with the same subtype breast cancer diagnosis, but their treatment plan would be completely different to each other. And that's genetically down to their, their, their genetic makeup. Incredible. And that's where healthcare is starting to go, this personalised view, Absolutely. because everybody is different. Everybody is different. We're seeing uh, 50% less patients requiring chemotherapy at the moment, which as, there's, as their treatment of care, which is phenomenal. You've also recently opened um, a new breast cancer care unit. This mm-hmm. is hugely exciting. Hugely exciting. So it's been in the pipeline for a long, long time. I'd say maybe eight years at this stage. But it was one of our real ambitions was to see, could we get this um, state-of-the-art, a one-stop location for patients and for the worried well. So this centre will see about 10,000 women and additionally it'll see probably 1,000 men um, in a year and it will give them um, a everything under the one roof. So they will go in, they will have their consultation, they will have their imaging done, their biopsy done, the multidisciplinary team will all be there who will, you know, discuss and provide a treatment plan for the particular patient if they're diagnosed with breast cancer. Plus we have an amazing clinical trials unit on the top floor. Tell me a little bit about the continued support of research into triple negative breast cancer. Mm. So triple negative is another subtype of breast cancer. It tends to happen to younger women under the age of 50. Um, It's quite aggressive. Research that is being done is quite poor um, because they, at the moment, their treatment plan is the age old of chemotherapy, surgery, radiation therapy. Um, These are younger women, you know, fertility is affected if you have chemotherapy. So a lot of the time they have to freeze eggs in advance of starting their treatment, etc. So what we're looking at is we um, did a national call out about three years ago now um, and we sought to come up with a research team who would really explore triple negative and discuss just try to discover new targeted therapies, so a new drug therapy that could be used instead of chemotherapy for these younger cohort of women. And so um, a team at Queen's University Belfast uh, won the, the tender for the, for the research and they are now exploring that. And in actual fact, I was talking to them last week and they are about to publish their research and hope to go on to clinical trial, which is amazing. So there's so many advancements and changes happening all the time. All of the time. And that is that is a challenge, that subtype triple negative. But then there's another challenge that is even more, I suppose, more important for me because it's one of those challenges that leads to fatality. And that's the one thing our whole remit is to try to transform breast cancer from being often a fatal disease into a long-term treatable illness. And this particular one, which is metastatic breast cancer that goes to the brain, is hugely challenging. So we are investing a lot of money um, that we raise into metastatic uh, brain brain breast, breast cancer led. So um, we have a team in Ireland, but we also have a collaboration with a famous um, world-renowned breast centre in the University of Chicago, the Ludwig Breast Centre. And together we're looking at ways to come up with newer targeted treatments that can prevent the cancer cells entering the brain. Because it is such a tough part of your job, isn't it, that the people that you meet that become your ambassadors, some of them you say goodbye to. And mm-hmm. I, I know how difficult that is. Likewise to anyone listening who's lost yeah. a family member to breast cancer or any cancer for uh-huh. that matter. Mm-hmm. But there are so many more positive stories. There are, there are. And you know what, we're, 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 that's why the money going into this particular metastatic disease and the progression to the brain is so vital. Because the more we can pump in, it's a little bit like... I heard Professor Hill talking about it the other day. It's a bit like we rallied the world to get a vaccine for COVID. If we can rally enough to get 
a, a some form of treatment that would block that progression to the brain. We already have clinical trial drugs that are working fantastically on other organs that the progression has gone to, whether it's the lungs, the liver, the bone. You know, we, we are controlling that. It's when it goes to the brain, that's where we have not a, not a good outcome. And there are certain steps that have to be taken, starting with the fundraising, moving to the research, moving to the publishing of papers, and it moves on from then. That's it. And I suppose one of our core, um, I suppose, goals was we wanted to speed up research discovery. And we are doing that because we fund specialist research n- nurses in each of the designated cancer centres. And their role is to collaborate with each other, but to build a national biobank of tissue and serum samples from patients that are diagnosed. So if you look back maybe six, seven years ago, each centre worked worked as a silo. So they would have seen, uh, they would have like maybe 350 cases annually that were diagnosed. They were only doing their research on a sample of 350, which is not enough. Whereas now they're having access to like 3,700 um, tissue samples from which they can all do their own independent research. And we're seeing one centre, say, six, seven years ago, might have produced a, a peer-reviewed publication in, say, 18 to 24 months. Now the centres are producing eight, nine, ten papers in a year, which is fantastic. And then these papers, this is the this is the key. We need to get this discovery from the scientific labs quickly into clinical trial. The quicker we can get it into clinical trial, the quicker we can come up with the new targeted drugs drug therapies that will be available, which will then change change the landscape. And I think people will really tap into that bit of hope that so mm. much is happening all of the time and advancements are being discovered and that impetus is there mm. to find eventually that treatment that has it just a, an illness exactly. rather than a, a fatal exactly. situation. The most important thing is, we always say it is, you know, Arnie Hill is, a, is a, an amazing breast surgeon, but he wants to do himself out of a job. He doesn't want to have to, you know, have surgery as invasive as it is. He wants to give, you know, have a targeted drug therapy. A bit like when you try to lower cholesterol, you take a statin. He wants that to be the case for anyone diagnosed with breast cancer into the future. We're getting there. You know, it's, you know, small steps, but we're actually, we are, I now see there is light at the end of the tunnel, which is fantastic. And I think another really important role that Breast Cancer Ireland play is that you build a community where people talk about breast cancer, about having breast cancer, about having all of the challenges that a treatment plan can take and thriving afterwards. Mm -hmm. And just that talking, that openness, it's so important. So important. And um, I suppose lots of our community, and they do become your family um, because, you, you know, you're with them for so long, which is great, but you hear such amazing stories. I mean, we had a girl... Um, she was 30 when she was diagnosed uh, with breast cancer no history in her family totally total shock she went through very aggressive surgery um, very aggressive treatment she came out the other side um, and she had triple negative so she had chemotherapy as her as her treatment and she within about a year got pregnant and has a beautiful baby boy Sam now which is amazing you know these are great hopeful stories for a lot of people and um, there is definitely hope out there we just have to keep investing in the research the research has to keep bubbling away And also at the other end, you're going into schools to help teach girls how to be breast aware. And they bring that information home to their mums, to their grannies, to their aunties, to their sisters, Mm -hmm. because early detection is still key and vital. Oh, it's key. And about, I suppose, six years ago, one of the key things was, well, how are we going to change that dial in relation to the education awareness piece? And I looked at Northern European countries and they have a survival rate of about, you know, 95, 98%. And I was thinking, wow, that's fantastic. They have a really great health health service. That's OK, that's fine. Ireland, we lag behind in that. But 
where we can make a difference is in the education and awareness piece. And so we decided we would go into schools initially, into TY classes and as part of a TY programme, when they're already talking about better nutrition, about mental health. And we said, could we do one on good breast health, understanding what good breast health was about? Now, initially, you know, I had surgeons and oncologists saying, oh, my God, no, you're going to have all these pubescent teenagers running in the doors and clogging up the waiting lists. But then they realised that the messaging was about good breast health. It was about understanding. And they nearly become my little social ambassadors because they go home to their homes, to their moms, their aunties, their grannies, their cousins and talk about uh, having had this session and that we have a shower card that we give them and that they send home and they parents are looking at it and we had one lady in a school um, in Blackrock and she contacted uh, the principal and said, oh my goodness, my daughter came home with a shower card. I happened to be in the shower the next day and I was following, you know, how to check myself properly and what the eight signs and symptoms were. And I have since gone on to have a double mastectomy. So early detection. She couldn't praise the programme enough. You so know, it's literally saving lives. Saving people's lives. That's what I always say, you know, hashtags awareness saves lives. It absolutely does. And this is a free programme. You know, so anyone, not only do we go into schools, we go to companies, we go to community groups. We've just been with the travelling community and the Roma community. We've been with the women's sheds and these are sponsored programmes. So like we have large, big sponsors behind it who allow us to provide the programme free of charge. Well, look, it's incredible work that you do. I know you don't do it alone. You've just touched on researchers, sponsors, ambassadors, teenagers. It's all part of what allows you to do what you do. But you are an incredible captain of that ship. CEO Ashling Hurley of Breast Cancer Ireland. And for more, go to breastcancerireland.com. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks a million for having me. Performance nutritionist Sinead Bradbury is the sports nutritionist at Galway GAA and owner of Nutrition and Health Clinic in Galway. She joins me in studio now to give her take on what health and wellness really is. Well, you're very welcome, Sinead. Thank you, Claire. So how did you come to be working in this area? Well, I've been in the area now for the last 15 years or so. Um, First of all, I did my degree in business in University of Limerick and majored in marketing. Then I went into the PR game and the marketing game and I got really interested in health and it was largely started and kick-started by a known allergy I had myself, chronic urticaria, which was like hives and I wanted to know more and study more. So I went and I started nutritional therapy and as my mum said, then get out into the community upon uh, graduation from that. So I mixed my business and my you know nutrition background and set up and you know then only recently I went back to do a master's in sports and exercise nutrition um, so I wanted to really focus in into this health and performance and, and athletes side of things. So I completed that there just over six months ago. So that's where I am now. And tell us a bit about the hives and everything then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that wasn't pleasant. Um, it was one of these things that just started and it was like welts and hives all over my body. And I was getting skin prick test done and allergy test done and exclusion diets and oh, there was so much to it. Um, but no one could help me. So I just needed to get down deep myself and figure it all out. And I've learned a lot about the whole histamine sensitivity issue. And um, it's an area I suppose I could even go on further because I was only talking to a client during the week. Actually, not a client, it was just a call and I just happened to help him. But he was going through this a rash, didn't know what was going on and, you know, together we figured out and there's so much to histamine clear that we don't, like it can be linked to migraines, to PMS, to skin concerns. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's high histamine foods like alcohol and um, some fermented foods, like even healthier foods. Um, so there's high, high histamine foods and then we have sometimes an issue with breaking down histamine. So it's a culmination of things. So I had to just figure it out and a lot to do with balancing my blood sugar levels and protein and minimising sugar and, and a whole lot of 
working on my parasympathetic nervous system as well, which is the rest and digest and the whole lifestyle side of things. So, you know, stress relief and mindfulness as well was definitely a big part of it. It's kind of like overactive, you know, overactivated system as such. So that's why, and, and even with my own clients now, I, when I did start off, I thought it was just about food, remove this, add in that, what's the problem? Um, and then I started working real lives, Claire, and I realised how difficult it is for some people to choose the right types of food and how much they have to set themselves up first to crave the right types of foods, you know, and address all the lifestyles out of things and get more sleep and rest and manage their stress. And only then can they kind of crave the right types of foods. And everybody's different. So you might tell us, you know, the things that worked for you, but for somebody else, it's going to be different because not only are they going to have a different biological system by the very nature of their genetic makeup and their DNA to their current lifestyle and their past experience and their lifestyle right now. So it's not going to be the same for everybody. No, it's not a one size fits all in any shape or form when it comes to nutrition. And I often say, again, through experience, being healthy isn't being an expert in the vitamin and mineral content of all these different foods you know, being healthy and well is being an expert in yourself, you know, and to understand how you work, how foods react in your body, who stresses you, what stresses you, what relaxes you. And again, we're all different. Is it intense exercise? Is it yoga? You know, what is it that really helps you and supports you in your lifestyle? And one of the big things as well, Claire, is to start where you're at. You know, some people dive in wanting to get, you know, I often talk in numbers as well, you know, and I work with elite athletes and they need to know what nine out of 10 feels like. We'll say this isn't a scientific scale now or anything. This is my own scale when I'm working with clients. So 10 out of 10 perfection doesn't exist and one doesn't need to be perfect health at all. Um, But nine out of 10 um, is elite pre-competition, you know, lifestyle, you know, hydration, fueling correctly, carbs, protein, good fats, anti-inflammatory foods, the whole lot pre-competition at an elite level. But for the rest of us, like a good seven out of 10 consistently is where it's at, you know, rather than being up and down and this, you know, being really depleted and we'll say three out of 10. And that's when I see a lot of my clients that can be depleted and, you know, stressed and they're aiming to get up there to nine out of 10 really quickly. But it's um, get to four, get to five, get to six, feel the change and know what's working for you. And just the understanding that it's it's not static either once you do get there. You know, you were always up and down a little bit, but just keep an eye on yourself so that you don't, you know, go downhill again in under five. Because that's when most people get their symptoms clear, whether it's migraine or skin concerns or digestive concerns, when we're really at that three to four out of ten. But we can be very good at winding ourselves when we're seven and eight out of ten. We can kind of tap into our own inner wisdom, I call it. Yeah, and I think that's what the key is, because as we said, it's different for everybody and even people with the best of knowledge, yep. like yourself, like myself, mainly because of the people I listen to all yep. of the time. We do tend to slip and I will notice my energy levels are down, my mood is down and I will say, right, what's different? Well, I've been sitting at the laptop a lot longer. Yep. Well, I brought the phone into bed with me the yep. last two nights, so I haven't got good quality sleep Did I cook that last meal from scratch? No, I didn't. And it's just little steps from there. But I think it always needs to come from a very compassionate place. And I think we get so punishing with health and wellness that we need to just cut this out, as you say, and get out there and start pounding the pavements. And we forget, why don't we just have a nice night and have a bath and get into bed early and then see how we feel tomorrow. And what you're describing there, Claire, is tuning into yourself, you know, and to be, again, where you're at. And, And that's, but you have to nearly touch and what it is to be well first, like you know what wellness feels like so you can compare it. Some people haven't worked on themselves enough to actually go, oh, wow, this is what health feels like. This is worth it, you know, as opposed to denial and punishment. 
And yeah, you might, if it's weight, you know, we don't want health to be associated with weight all the time. It's wellness and feeling well and having energy and balanced moods and having happy relationships. Of course, there's no such thing as perfection again, as I said, but, you know, it's, it's, it's to be striving for the right to the right feeling as opposed to, you know, a number. And something that really saddens me in a way, especially as you have given it a, a numerical scale almost, I have heard it said many times that there's a lot of people going around at a five out of ten and that they're just happy there or that they're not happy there, but they just accept it. Mm. So low mood, low energy mm. levels, digestive issues, um, pain that they just kind of get used to mm. and that we just think that that's how life has to be. And there isn't an understanding that a few small steps can make a huge difference. Yeah, and that's why I love what I do because I see the difference in people and they have to feel it themselves, you know. And I always say, like, it doesn't have to be a lifelong, you know, um, experiment as such. You know, give yourself six to eight weeks to work on, you know, trying to put as many good habits into place. You know, work on your sleep and your hydration. You know, clear your calendar if you need to really rest. But you have to feel it. You have to know what what it feels like. And again, as you say, Claire, so many people are getting used to symptoms and it's in my family and, you know, all my family were bloated and, you know, um, it's part of, you know, but you can really, you don't have to be a victim of your genetics either. There's so much at play in terms of uh, how you manage yourself to be able to switch off some of those genetics, you know, um, areas that we don't want in our families, I suppose, you know, that we can really be proactive ourselves in our own lifestyle. And it's focusing on how you feel and to feel well in yourself is really what you're And to after. enjoy what you love to do, you know, and to, you know, to bring out, not, I don't even sometimes like the best version of yourself. That's kind of hard. You know, even the good version of yourself, you know, to be, and you know when you feel like that and you're pleasant and like, corporate leaders, you know, CEOs, they, they need to, like leaders need to be well in themselves as well, Claire, when they're looking after other people or, you know, um, they have a team around them, you know, it really always starts with you in, in terms of, you know, your work and your productivity and the enjoyment and, you know, if you're a parent, you know, again, we tend to put ourselves last, but again, if we put ourselves first and be well and make small little incremental changes that means we have a little bit more energy and a little bit more stability and, uh, you know, to, to work with all the demands that we have at our time. And it's interesting, I, I was watching a an interview with, um, it was a, an American guy who, who works sort of similar to yourself. And he said of the people that come back to him to say they feel better, they don't really talk about, oh my God, I've got loads of more energy. Oh my God, my, my migraine's gone. Oh my God, I'm sleeping much more soundly, even though they are all things that they maybe fill out in their forms. They say, I'm able to give back more. Yeah. So I am... Um, better in my community, I'm better in my family, I'm better in my friendship groups because of how I feel, which I think is really, really interesting, um, a really interesting concept. Because you're right, we focus so much on my muscle tone is better and my waist is this size. And, you know, it's an inner transformation and a self-confidence. And the same with elite athletes as well, uh, Claire. You know, athletes need to feel well. It's not just about being big and fast and strong. Their immunity needs to be, they don't want to be missing training or missing games. You know, they, their immunity needs to be And like Sport Ireland are coming out with, you know, a lot of information as well and awareness around a condition called REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And if you're under-fueling for your sport and not looking after yourself, and this can be very, you know, pronounced in adolescent athletes and particularly female athletes, you know, and symptoms of REDS um, can be low immunity, low mood, poor sleep, 
young girls losing their, their, their cycle and their periods disappearing for months and, and on end. Um, so it's really important, again, to be like health to me is about abundance, you know, abundance of the right types of food. And especially in the, and the athletic population, they really need to be fueling. You, ha- you, ca- you can't be like your other friends that don't play sport intensity. You have to fuel and recover and be really tuned into that all side of things as well. So it's not always well known that wellness in the athletic population, but wellness and good sleep and looking after yourself is so important, even in elite athletes as well rather than just that pumping and going and big and strong. (laughs) And do you think there's people listening who might not know that they're living their life like an athlete? I mean, we're going to look at the GAA teams or, you know, the people going to the Olympics or the athletics championships and go, they're elite athletes. But if you're training five times a week, if you're playing sport, even at community level, sometimes I even look at my own 11 year old son and I'm thinking, are you fueling your body correctly? And I know this is my job. Are you sleeping correctly? You know, to, to put back in what you're taking out. Are there people who are running three to five times a week who aren't putting themselves in that category and they should? Excellent point, Claire. And that's why I love talking to you. And I know you have such a deep understanding of health because that is a huge gap in the area of nutrition. People not uh, equating themselves to the demands that they are doing. And, and a lot of, like I've worked with even uh, triathletes and Ironmen and they will go through and, and their mental capacity is massive, but they're not always fueling their bodies as much as they need to. And it starts again at the uh, adolescence. Um, and the, there's a huge need to treat your body differently if you're playing three to four times a week in any sport, you know, and that's if you're doing the, and especially if you're increasing your exercise all of a sudden because you want to increase your health. And sometimes what I've noticed is that some people, they go on a health kick, they cut out carbohydrates, they increase exercise. Next thing, they're not getting that energy <clears throat> because they're not fueling it. And not only are they not fueling it, they're going for sugar and sweets. And I don't know how many out there might say, I, the more I exercise, the more I crave the wrong types of food and the more I eat of the wrong types of food. But that's because they're not prioritising the carbohydrate intake that's required. So carbohydrates are not bad. We are needed, especially when you're a very active, you know, person, but also especially when it comes to sport and anybody who's exercising three to four times a week certainly needs to have a high carbohydrate intake. And like there's a whole science behind it. I don't get too technical, but like three to five grams of carbohydrates per per kilogram of body weight is what's needed for, we'll say, minimum um, exercise. But if you're up at an elite category or level, it's five to seven grams of carbohydrates per kg of body weight. So there's a whole science behind it. And, you know, rest days, it decreases and training days, carbohydrates increase. <clears throat> so it's it's important to be to, to be focused and, and, and noticing that you do need to eat more if you're exercising more. Yeah. And, and making sure you're putting in the rest, as yes. you say, in the re- recuperation and allowing that for your, your body, because yeah. that's where the issue with diet culture has come in, because we've had the Atkins diet and, you know, that's come in because people have lost weight and therefore it's seen as a success or the message of eat less, move more has superseded even the science that you're you're yeah, talking about and, there. You know, you know, I get asked about different diets and, you know, intermittent fasting and what's good and what's not good. And my my advice is always, please don't start from a place of depletion. You know, at three out of 10, please just start with the basics. Don't do anything radical. You know, gain more, you know, get more sleep, drink more water, you know, go walking if you're not exercising. You don't have to go into a boot style situation. But when you're a six or seven out of 10 or a high seven, you know, that's when you can play around a little bit. You know, does this suit me? How do I feel? You know, try intermittent fasting. There's a little bit of science there that can support it, you know, for weight loss. But, you know, do these things from a place of wellness um, and knowledge on your body. But if you're really, really depleted, 
stay away from anything that's too radical because it'd be too tough on your body and you're not strong enough to withstand anything severe like that. Tell us a bit about Body and Kind, the community that you're building with your sister Ashlyn. Yeah, so we started this uh, a few years ago now, um, 2017 I think it was, and we, Ashlyn and my sister played camogie for Galway, uh, so I had the nutrition background and Ashlyn had the athletic background. So we come together with our passions and we created a, an, a, an events for women and we called it Body and Kind because we wanted to promote kindness to our bodies and to our fellow women. And we focused on self-care, fitness and food. So yeah, it's it's um, we haven't organised one for a while and sh- we'll, we'll let you know, Claire, when the next one is coming up. But they're really feel-good f- you know, days out and, you know, it was become a mother-daughter day, you know, friends coming together and really focus on the right messages and especially even for younger girls that they'd understand what it is to take real care of their body and to kind of really look, focus on what their body can do as opposed to what it looks like all of the time. Because I go into schools as well, Claire, and we know that sometimes that there's an obesity crisis out there, but like, you know, a high-performing young girl can take a little bit of information and take it too far. If she hears carbs aren't good, she might cut carbs completely. If she hears drinking 1.5 litres of water is good, she might veer towards 4 litres. So there's a lot of miseducation out there. So any chance to kind of educate on what's really right and really to get to know their bodies and it's changing so much. And even if they're even on a sports front, if they're young female athletes, all that area around reds and, uh, you know, their menstrual cycle. And that's what I did my thesis on, actually. I did it on a female GA athletes training and competing during menstruation. So it's a huge area of passion of mine. 150 senior intercounty GA athletes telling me how they react and perform when they are menstruating and all that, you know, the white shorts and, you know, the the lack of support and communication within the sporting environment there. So there's a lot of education that's needed around that. Yeah, just to break down that sort of barrier and taboo. taboo. Yeah, and just start talking about it. And to support the male coaches as well, Claire. You know, one of the barriers that I found from my research is that, you know, it's they have an inability to talk because that the the male the coaches are male and that, you know, a little bit of a hesitation there. But the male coaches need support as well. So, I mean, the governing bodies need to bring in and help, you know, coaches as well, how to bring it up because it doesn't have to be the be all and end all. Um, and I'm involved with a, an athletic um, tracking app called Actimate and they have integrated the menstrual cycle now into into their tracking, which is brilliant. So, you know, the girls and the, and, and the female athletes can track how they're feeling and if there is any fatigue or inflammation or anything associated with the different phases of the cycle. And, and it can be an open forum then to communicate if, if necessary. Well, it's great work you're doing, starting conversations, changing conversations, breaking down taboo and helping people get a real understanding of what health and wellness is. If people want to find out more, you'll find Sinead on Instagram at Sinead Bradbury Nutrition. Sinead, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Jojo Cordoza who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.